Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by Try Vegan, a vegan meal home delivery service that is nutritious and delicious and makes your life easier. Based out of New Jersey, they deliver throughout the Northeast. Check out more details on their website, tryveganmealprep.com. And you can get 25% off your first order with the promo code LITYOGA. So go vegan. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns. So together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Wednesday Q&A. You ask the questions and I answer. Starting off, H.M. Bush asked me, what's the best way to safely practice yoga with an umbilical hernia? So an umbilical hernia is when the part of, anytime you have a hernia, that means there is some kind of tear and sometimes a larger gap, gaping um, of the abdominal wall, the superficial abdominal wall. And it is not, depending on the size of it, it might not be that big of a deal, but The thought is at some point it could be a bigger deal because if it were to get bigger, then part of your your intestinal wall could start poking through there, which is not only very, very painful, but can also be dangerous. The intestines can become ischemic, which means they lose blood and start to die. And you know, then you have to have an emergency surgery and it's not fun. So people will get their hernias repaired if they have a large enough one to be concerned about. So with the umbilical hernia, I'm saying all of this because the umbilical hernia is not often large enough to immediately have surgery or something. It can, it happens a lot after being pregnant because your belly is expanding along with the uterus and it's getting stretched and stretched and the navel is right in the center. So at some point it has, you know, especially if you start off with a any, it doesn't have any, it can't be, you know, held in place anymore. And that, that skin just kind of pops through. And so you would have a little bit of an Audi. And if it was significant enough, you can be left with uh, uh, the pressure of that, the uterus expanding on the abdominal wall, it can um, open up the abdominal fascia there. So you can be left with a little bit of an umbilical hernia. So I would say, first of all, it depends. Like how big is the hernia? Um, I had a, I had one, it was very, very small. It did not bother me after my first pregnancy. After my second pregnancy, 
I still had it. It did not bother me, but I had an inguinal hernia, which is farther down on the inside of the inner thigh. And it was painful and I needed that to be repaired uh, after my pregnancy. And they said, well, while we're in there, we'll also just repair the umbilical since we're in there. So it wasn't something that they needed to go into right away, but since they were going in for this inguinal one, they went in. So if you are, if you have this umbilical hernia and it's not that large, what you just have to be mindful of is not putting pressure in the abdominal wall that's pushing the abdominal wall out. So like in the typical type crunches that people will do, uh, that could be a place where it would be putting pressure in the abdominal wall and, and of course down into the pelvic floor as well. And that could actually um, put pressure on the hernia in a way that is not going to be good over time. So I'd say more than anything, if you have the doctor, you know, if you know that the doctor says doing whatever movement you want is fine, just watch it, watch the umbilical hernia. Um, so if you have that clearance, then what you really want to be aware of is how to kind of pull everything. Um, what I talk about in my yoga classes is imagining the abdominal wall as like a, a webbing. Like if you have a spider web and at the center of the spider web is your navel, your belly button. And so all of those tendrils, all of these different lines of the abdominal wall pull in toward that. And then the space of the, the, the navel right, right behind that pulls back toward the spine. And so that effort there will hold the, the abdominal fascia together in a nice way that won't put more stress on it so that when you're moving, whether you're right side up, like standing in a one-legged you know, leg balance or crescent lunge, or you're in a plank, you can integrate that core in a nice way that's going to give you umbilical hernia a lot of support. I would say the main thing is to not do anything where you're really excessively going back, like a, you know, sometimes a back bend, like a wheel or something like that could put that pressure on there. So you can imagine if you're putting pressure right in the, to the, to the, the navel, the umbilicus it's known, you know, that, that could, where the hernia is, that could um, make it bigger or make it hurt or, you know, worse. So you're going to have to be more mindful of those big back bendy type things. So that's the main thing I would say about practicing safely is use your core muscles. The, the hernia is there because the, the core was weakened in some way as it naturally happens when you're pregnant. So it can, other people can develop it without being pregnant, but that's, that's your cue. Like you've got to really make the, the deep core muscles stronger and stay away from big, like, uh, sit-up type things where you're really curling way up and, and stretching and tightening that in a superficial way. You need to get deep into the muscles to give that stability. Okay. So alchemy.yogi asks, what does your practice look like when you are sick? Do you still do it every day? Well, I'm going to knock on wood because, you know, we're talking about this in the pandemic and um, have been been well for a long time now. The last time I was not well was after I traveled in Africa and it wasn't traveling in Africa. It was, I think that I had just not been sleeping and then I was on a plane a lot. And then we were at a different altitude, um, climb in the mountains with gorillas. And I was just really 
uh, taxed, overtaxed. And so I came home from that. And it was the first time in well over a decade I had been um, sick. And what I will say is I I just listen to my body. If I'm feeling like I'm not sick right now, but the last couple of days I've been in my mind, I kind of jokingly say, boy, I've been so lazy. Um, because I haven't, I just have been not very productive, but I'm saying it in a way, like I'm not really judging myself. I'm just noticing it. And I'm also realized like we're at a very unique time. Like there's a lot of unknown in the air and that unknown has a residual pull on our energy. So things can be going great as they are, but you still have these, I, I still have that undercurrent of unknown that we all are affected by to some degree. And so I kind of give myself, I think the answer is whether it's physiologically, I'm really not feeling well, or I'm like literally like energetically not feeling well. I just give myself a break and say like, what is going to feel best or maybe move a little bit. So today, for instance, it's interesting. You're asking like, I got up later than I've been getting up. I just really couldn't get the the wheels turning and I had a few appointments that I knew I had to, you know, that I was going to have on my schedule, some privates and um, doing the podcast and another group class. And in between, I was like, okay, these are the five things I need to get done and I need to practice. So I got four of the five things done and it was, and including a private and it was three o'clock, you know, and that's just like a terrible time to start to want to practice. But I just thought, I'm going to do it. And it was a 40 minute practice, which, you know, on another day I would be like, oh, that was such a, that was such a short, not very effective practice. But today it was like 40 minutes felt like four hours. So, you know, I, I just listen and my body, my mind mental game was just not there. I was really not in it in the same way that I normally am. So I think if you're not well, if you're not, if, so that's, that's what I do. Because you asked me what I do. If I'm not feeling well, I listen to what my body wants, which might just be mean just kind of like walk around the house and not do very much. I do try and move because movement, even in the smallest sense, is going to make you feel a little bit better. I think across the board, there's probably a few illnesses that would um, be the exceptions. But for the most part, the rule is movement is always going to feel better. But you could do 20 minutes on your mat. You could. You don't have to do a full hour practice if that's what you're used to. So I think do what feels right for you, but um, be be kind, be kind. Like it's okay. It's one day, it's or two days or three days. It's, it's, it's okay. What I will tell you is if you let it go and it becomes like two weeks, it's then you're getting, then it's like harder to get some rhythm back. So you might not feel well for two weeks, but in those two weeks, start moving. And it, and, and again, think of 20 minutes as a win. It doesn't have to be the full, full Monty. Like it's better to do that than nothing. Okay. Um, Val Ruby asked me, thoughts on moving from open to closed hip in sequences? So that's, that's a great question that um, I'm not really sure where that mindset was that, oh, you should never go from like a standing airplane or warrior three to a half moon or something like that, or a half moon to a C 
seated twists, for example. So that you, where you're opening the hip, so half moon would be opening, closing the hip would be um, being like in a warrior three airplane or going into a seated twist. So I think that it was more that um, you, if you move from more from your pelvis, uh, you could it could feel very wonky. Now there are some things like worry going from warrior one to warrior two. I don't do because you have two feet on the floor. So two feet are grounded and you tend to move the hips. But in that process, you, you're the bottom of the hip or the bottom of the lever that connects to the hip is stuck, meaning your feet are not moving, but you're moving on top of them. So there's more of a kind of grinding feeling that can happen. And I do, in, in my assessment, I don't like that feeling. So I don't teach warrior one to warrior two. But when you have that one of the feet off the floor and you, I think it's absolutely fine and it's actually very, very good for the gluteal strength to practice going from a position where you both, that your both hips are kind of level. Um, so in a warrior three, which would be considered closed to and more open and you open up into um, half moon. And really what you're doing is you're using the torque from the floor to help you open. And here's what I'm talking about. So say your left foot is on the floor and your right leg is behind you off the floor in an airplane. So your spine is long, you're at a 90 degree angle from spine to hip to ankle. And then you're going to open so that your, your torso faces to the right. And you could do it by turning your right rib cage and your right thigh open. But what I think is better and healthier and really more challenging is to push your left foot into the floor and push it out. Like you're trying to push it out to the left. It's, it's called dialing, but it's like pushing it out to the left. And that torque will rotate your hip and that will turn you to the right. And you'll feel a lot of great gluteal strength when you do that. Then coming back to warrior three, you have to control it. It's almost like an eccentric or slowing down control. So you turn the pelvis back to the way it was in how you started off an airplane. And then you can do the half moon again and kind of go back and forth between those two. But you can't be collapsing your left hip out to the left because then it'll feel super grindy because the ball of the um, femur has started off over to the left. So when you start turning, it's going to really feel stuck over there. So if you're not sure what I'm talking about, you can practice this at home where you stand on your left leg and you put your hands around and kind of cuff your pelvis and then lift, kind of suction up your belly so that you're really got a lot of integration there and then push into the floor with the left foot and dial it to the left and turn so the pelvis is now facing more to the right. And then you can return it so it's facing in that starting position and feel as if the ball of that left hip joint is just turning in the socket, but not getting stuck on any of the, the wall of the acetabulum. So that can be a really healthy and strong thing, but hard. Otherwise, the open and closed hip with both feet down, I, I don't like. So 
that that's my thoughts on that. N. Kelhet asked me, do you take any supplements being vegan? And my answer is yes, I do. I take, if now I have to say, I'm not, I've gotten a lot better because I got one of the, you know, like senior citizen, I shouldn't say that because, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting up there, but senior citizen type vitamin pill box from one week to another, I put all of my vitamins in there for each day. So what I take, I take vitamin D because that's highly recommended for anyone who is in the region of the country world that is going to be vitamin D deficient. So for the United States, I think that's pretty much anyone above South Carolina. And vitamin D is is really, and I take the vegan form of it. There are different forms of it. I take the vegan form of it. I also take a vitamin B12 and I take that three times a week and it's a tablet. Those are micrograms. It's really easy to get um, vitamin B12 just, and it's, you just put it on your tongue and it's a nice little berry flavor. The thing about vitamin B12, and I've, I've gotten questions about this and I see this all the time, is you don't get it from animals. B12 is a microorganism that's in the soil. And, you know, in the good old days where uh, not that they're good old days. That's a terrible. See, that's like a habit of saying good old days of like farming. No, whatever it is, our thought process is that the cows are just grazing grass, and they used to get their B twelve from the microorganisms in the soil. So they would be grazing in the grass, and um, those microorganisms coming from their own poop coming as fertilizer, coming into the grass, and then they eat the grass and they get the B12. And then when they're killed, you're eating the B12 in the meat. Now, um, many of the cows that are being eaten are not grass fed. So if you say to me, oh, well, I, I really need B12. So I buy, I need to buy grass fed cows. I would say you are still adding an extra step in there because the cow is the carrier. It's not the originator of B12. So B12, everyone probably needs to be substituting or supplementing because so few things now are um, covered in this microorganisms. You know, you used to also get it from vegetables. If you pulled a carrot out from the dirt and just washed it in your kitchen sink, as opposed to getting like hyper sanitized um, the carrots that you buy at the grocery store, then you would still have the micro microorganisms still around in the vegetables. And so you can, if you grow your own foods, just like what I grow my own lettuce right now, which I'm so proud of. I've never grown anything in my life. Um, and I don't wash it. I, I mean, I don't like hyper clean it. I don't even wash mine because it's there. There's a little cover for it, but because I don't mind having some things on it, it's good to have some, a lot of organisms on your food because you're, you know, you'll, you need to build up a, a good gut biome. So B12, I take vitamin D, I take, I also take vitamin C when I feel depleted or like right now when I think about it, because we're in this pandemic, um, I try and take vitamin C. It's, it doesn't stay with you very long. So you need to take it um, regularly. It doesn't stay with you like some of the fat soluble ones do. I take a multivitamin when I think about it to get some of the other things, but I don't always think about that. And I've just started taking that more recently. And it has, it's just more that I'm just getting older and that's what my doctor advised. And I go to a really good 
doctor who does like all the great screenings, not just like the, kind of the basic screenings, but really dissecting the blood work and comparing. Cause so some, this is important. Like if you go to a doctor who just does the basic panel and says, Hey, you look, everything looks good. There's a range and they've created that range, but they don't necessarily look at the range of some kind, some vitamin that you have in the context of a compared to something else. Right. So for instance, my B12 was, has always been normal, even since, you know, ever since becoming vegan, it, I've, I've been taking, or I've been measuring for it. And I was never taking supplements, even though it was advised for all vegans to take B12. My B12 numbers were great. But what my integrative doctor said, your B12 numbers are great, but you specifically have very, you, my red blood cells are I think they're larger or something. I can't remember. And that's just more of a genetic thing. And she said, you know, for somebody with the larger surface area of the red blood cells, you need to have your B12 even higher. So even though it registers normal for most people, I think it's a little low for somebody like you with this larger red blood cell. And I might not be explaining it right, but I really, really believe in going to a doctor who is going to look at the full spectrum of, of the relationship of these numbers too. Um, yeah, so those are my supplements. Thank you guys, as always, pulling for you. Love you. <laughs>